Welcome, everybody, to the Ride In NFL DFS podcast. Our best ball series rolls on here, and today I have one of the sharpest minds and one of my coworkers at 4 for 4, Chris Allen here. He puts out so much awesome content on 4for4.com, and I'm going to let him tell you where else you can find his work in a second. But um, it's one of my main resources when I have a best ball draft open. He's in the other tabs. His information on 4 for 4 is in the other tabs. So uh, that just goes to show you how much I respect his work. Chris, what's up? Pat, I mean, uh, it, that just blows me away right off the bat. Uh, but I'll also say that uh, your work, uh, the, the write-in, the, the uh, DFS podcast has been in my rotation for the past year or so. So I, I will say that feelings are 100% mutual. Uh, Saturdays or even Sundays when I'm doing my, uh, even though I guess I probably shouldn't like do some last minute tinkering to my DFS lineups, but uh, your, your thoughts are, are definitely a part of my process on a weekly basis. So I, it, it's great that we're finally getting, getting a chance together to sit down and rap for a little bit about best ball. So I'm, I'm excited to, to talk about uh, doing some drafts. Absolutely. Tell the listeners uh, where they could find you on Twitter and where they can find your content on the internet. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Chris Allen FFWX. Uh, primarily, my content's over at Four for Four. They've been graciously uh, kind enough to let me, uh, you know, ramble uh, in some articles for them. But you can also find me doing some uh, dynasty work uh, over at uh, Dynasty League Football DLF. I also do some uh, a few pieces here and there over at numberfire.com as well uh, during during the season. So you can find me in a, a lot of spots. But those are the three main places you can find me. Great. So the first thing I want to start with is um, a little bit of like a generic settings and scoring and the two uh, platforms that I want to talk about today, which I feel like are probably the two uh, main platforms since MFL 10s and draft have kind of gone by the wayside in the last few years is Fanball, uh, which is, you know, best ball 10s on their website. And then the FFPC, which I feel like is one of the main platforms. websites that most best ball drafters flock to for kind of like a championship or you know that Vegas type best ball uh, league feel. So let's start off with the FFPC uh, before we get into some of the nuances of the FFPC. What are the the settings and scorings that may differ from other leagues that people would need to be aware of? So for uh, the FFPC uh, at least from a I guess if we want to start off with a buy-in standpoint, the FFPC, I think, has one of the higher stakes uh, in terms of what you would typically buy in in order to get into some of their best ball drafts. Uh, comparatively, I think their lowest is about $35 to get into one, so the prices are a little bit bigger compared to best ball 10s. I think, I mean, they start off at 10 bucks. I think they go a little bit lower nowadays. I don't know if they're trying to incorporate the similar structure that Draft had, but $10 is uh, normally about the minimum you can get over best ball 10s, 35 over at FFPC. Uh, so that's one of the main differences. Uh, otherwise, uh, the big difference, and this is where strategy kind of comes into play here, is that FFPC uses a tight end premium scoring setting. So with the 
addition to uh, however many receptions or points that tight ends can generate, uh, you start to see the ADP for tight ends creep into the, uh, the first round. Uh, guys like Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, uh, even Zach Ertz, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I mean, those were guys that you would see with first, second round ADP. So when you're planning for or hunting for value in the early rounds and seeing if guys will fall, uh, incorporating uh, drafting one of the onesie positions uh, like, like tight end is something that you'll have to try and look at within the first six rounds where typically if you're drafting over at Fanball, I mean, you could probably get away with missing out on the big three uh, now, maybe with the big four, if you want to include Andrews in there, uh, but and kind of use a, a late round approach to drafting tight ends. But on FFPC, with uh, the increased number of rounds as well, uh, because they go to 28 rounds instead of uh, 20, uh, and also the inclusion of defenses and kickers, uh, looking at tight ends early. Uh, in order to kind of, uh, make sure that you're securing at least a decent amount of some offense uh, is typically where the, the draft strategy will try and change uh, for, for those. So that, those are one of the, the, the big differences between uh, FFBC and Fanball. And, you know, the one thing about FFPC drafts that you kind of touched on, if you are going to do one of these drafts, make sure that you have uh, allotted yourself some time. Because as Chris said, they are 28 rounds. Um, it's not, you know, I know most people are used to, you know, loading up MFL 10, even a slow draft on MFL 10, but then last, the last few years draft, those kind of went by pretty quick, you know, hour, hour and a half, you could knock out an 18, 20 round draft, extra eight rounds, 10 or eight, uh, eight rounds in these. And they are, um, you know, pretty slow moving. I would say I was surprised when I started um, playing on FP, FFPC a few years ago. Um, it's pretty time consuming. So let's talk about the roster construction on, on FFPC, because this is one thing that I think a lot of people, um, you know, they, they pay attention to, but I think they, they see the top winning percentage type of lineup. And, you know, they assume that they always have to try to hit the certain uh, numbers uh, or the certain thresholds of the different positions. And what I want you to speak to now is, just what is or what has been on the FFPC the best or the top winning percentage lineups in, in 2019 and how that plays a role in your drafting, right? So at what point are you not going to take uh, a, a ninth wide receiver or at what point are you going to force um, a fourth tight end and uh, just speak to that a little bit? Sure, sure. And uh, th roster construction, uh, regardless of platform, like if you're drafting over at FFP FFPC or Fanball, is one of the, to me, the most interesting parts of best ball, uh, best ball leagues, because you can get into some of the, the nuance or uh, you, can, you can start up at the high level, like what we're talking about here and just however many you want to draft at each position. But then afterwards, you can immediately dive into the weeds of, well, what types of players are you going to draft? And like you were just mentioning in the setup, I mean, if let's say the optimal uh, lineup or the highest winning percentage lineup says that you, you have to draft eight wide receivers, but if you see that ninth wide receiver and it's at a value, do you deviate from that? And I would say yes. 
Uh, but from just starting off, uh, some of the research that we did in uh, building some of uh, the, looking at the percentage of winning lineups for uh, roster construction. So it was uh, three quarterbacks, seven running backs, eight wide receivers, four tight ends, uh, three defenses, and three uh, kickers was the highest, uh, the highest winning uh, roster construction uh, lineup uh, on FFPC back in 2019. Now, when you look at like the number of, I guess, investments or the number of players picked at each position, does that mean that that is the, that is going to be the only roster construction or the only lineup that you can use in order to win? No. I mean, there are a number of other build paths that uh, we also looked into. And of course you can see as you start moving down, uh, uh, moving down the, the rankings, you can see that the, the, percentages start to drop off as well and that makes sense but does that mean that because somebody drafts six running backs versus eight running backs versus seven running backs that uh, they're obviously going to be uh, they're going to be a loser or there's a clear cutoff in terms of how play, or how drafters are going to win or lose just based off that number no it's all about how if you're actually being able to build optimally how you're allocating across the positions so it's an understanding of, it's a balance of both understanding opportunity cost and also looking at what you need in order to win. So if we know, especially looking at just FFPC, let's say just focusing in on the tight end position, we know that because the tight end position, there's a tight end premium scoring, that we're going to need to draft at least one or two to incorporate bye weeks. But because of the tight end premium position or because of the tight end premium scoring, we're gonna need to also make sure that we're, uh, we're, we're boosting our chances of winning by accounting, by actually adding more to that position. So when we're looking at drafting just three or four uh, tight ends at that position, you can see that there's actually a benefit to doing that. Whereas over at Fanball, two or three tight ends is typically however many that they're going to wind up drafting for those. So it's just a different way of looking at uh, building your rosters optimally in that case. And then, of course, looking at your, your core positions, running back and wide receiver, that's where you're going to uh, be making most of that's, those are your core positions where most of your scoring is going to come from. But you can see it starts to delineate more towards wide receiver, obviously, because of the PPR scoring. So is roster construction the end-all, be-all? No. But looking at it and understanding how the investments are made at each position, it helps you build a profile as to how you, can, you should construct your team. But then afterwards, you start to look at, well, round by round, how you, uh, like where the opportunity cost lies and where the value is at. And that's where you can start to fill in those positions as the draft continues. So, and let me throw up something out here. It's something that I've mainly done in, in best balls and, uh, you know, listeners of this show know that I am a semi-serious best ball player. Like I'll, I'll be in 20 to 30 best balls every year. I'm not someone who tracks my exposure um, unless the site does it for me, which I like the fact that most of the sites are doing that now. But uh, let me, does the, do your first few picks, and this is normally how it is for me, do your first few picks dictate the overall construction of your rosters. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you get Travis Kelsey in the first round of the FFPC or maybe at the top half of the second, or if you go running back, running back, running back, 
is that going to dictate the rest of your roster, right? So if a three, uh, if you start three running backs, is that probably going to end up a team that only has six running backs? And as if, if you start Travis Kelsey, is that probably going to end up a team that only has two or three tight end as opposed to four? Likely, yes. Uh, just focusing on the the tight end portion. So if I if I'm going to draft Travis Kelsey, and I'm just thinking about this from from a team building perspective. I'm assuming that Travis Kelsey is one going to be like my, my anchor at that position. So very similar to how you would view a Christian McCaffrey or a Saquon Barkley at the running back position. So I'm assuming that Travis Kelsey for uh, 15, 16 weeks out of the season, he's going, to, he's going to be like the guy that I'm going to be starting or should be in the starting position for my tight end position. But now at the same time, again, accounting for bye weeks, that means I'm going to need two. And then if we also want to throw in variants, we should also incorporate at least a third. So I would say that for that, for, for that example, yes, absolutely. If you're investing early, understanding opportunity cost would then force me to or actually push me towards investing in other positions because if I'm investing in Travis Kelsey early, that means I'm giving up a, a Tyreek Hill. I'm giving up a, just based off of his ADP, you're giving up somebody like, let's say, uh, DeAndre Hopkins, uh, Austin Eckler, if you're still into that running, uh, into his situation, Chris Scott. I mean, th those are the guys that you're giving up. So if you're foregoing a wide receiver one, a running back one in the early rounds, then you should all try and complement that by looking at getting some of those positions or swinging for upside of those other positions that you passed up later on in your draft. That's excellent stuff there, Chris. Um, let me ask you this now. Attacking the onesie positions, how does it differ on a site like Fanball where there's only, you know, or, or maybe even the new site drafters where there's only 18 to 20 draft spots where on FFPC, we already mentioned that there's 28. So when we're attacking the quarterback, uh, defense, kicker, and to an extent, tight end, even though they can be flexed, how does it? How do you? How does that differ uh, on those two two sites? And what does the roster construction numbers uh, of years past say about going after those onesie positions? So if we're not going to look at FFPC and we're just looking at Fanball or something similar, uh, approaching it with a let's say a mid to late round type of strategy does make some sense because if you're uh, if the number of rounds are decreasing, uh, most of your ADP is now, let's say, normal in comparison to what you would see over on FFPC, then it is possible for you to wind up recouping some of that, uh, uh, recouping some of that opportunity cost you might have lost by uh, skipping out on getting, let's say, Tyler Higby, Hunter Henry, Evan Ingram, some of those guys, and then maybe swinging for upside with a guy like Mike Gusecki, uh, Hayden Hurst and some of those guys later on in your draft. And again, because you have, you're not drafting for as many, pos uh, many rounds or getting as many at each position, you're then at least able to cobble together enough value at that position. Because again, if the tight end, uh, tight end scoring is similar to the rest, then you can wind up putting together and making extra, uh, extra acquisitions at that tight end position in order to, I guess, put together enough so that you have at least a starting tight end there at, during each week. And the same thing for quarterback. Now, 
this season feels different. I mean, it's, we're, all, we're still in May, so, I mean, of course, it feels different because of everything that's going on right now. But at least from a, from a market perspective, it does feel like, I guess, drafters are getting much sharper in terms of how we approach the quarterback position. Because right now, I mean, you can still get a decent quarterback. Let's say Carson Wentz going, is going around, let's say, quarterback 9-10. You can still get a guy like Matt Ryan, uh, quarterback 11, uh, so on. I mean, those guys. But, I mean, the late-round quarterback strategy is something that, not to say it's fizzling out, but it's just harder for you to find that edge uh, in waiting and waiting and waiting until the later rounds in order to draft a quarterback. I don't see, like, while Kirk Cousins is definitely still there in the back end of of most of your drafts, he doesn't have the same upside as when we were looking at him for that late-round quarterback strategy when he was still in Washington. Guys like Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott, I mean, some of those guys that were going in later rounds, definitely not going to be there anymore. So really, I mean, you kind of have to tell a story for yourself in order to believe in some of those late-round guys where other guys uh, might have uh, more, I guess, enthusiasm or hype behind them. So a guy like Matt Stafford, who's going around quarterback 12, 13, 14, he might be going in the mid to later rounds, but I would rather have them before trying to talk myself into somebody like Jared Goff or even, I mean, Joe Burrow, who's getting some hype now because he has some juice with his legs, but it's still, you kind of have to talk yourself into, do you want to invest in a rookie in Cincinnati in his first year? So with the quarterback position, it's still possible for you to execute a late round strategy, but with the market this year, it just feels like a mid-round strategy or trying to push for one of those guys in the QB8 to QB12, like somewhere in there. Uh, that, that feels like it at least will put you in a better position in order to get enough production at the quarterback position. Yeah, I completely agree. And I never had the stomach to, you know, redraft is a different story because if you wait and, you know, you draft a, a Sam Darnold, Andy Dalton, and I'm talking, I'm speaking years past, Sam Darnold, Andy Dalton, and, and Case Keenum in these best ball leagues, you're not guaranteed, uh, you know, that, that you're going to get QB1 numbers a lot. If, if you did that in redraft, you could always work the waiver wire if those guys don't work out. Uh, so I agree wholeheartedly that, and I've done this, you know, previous years, um, I always try to aim for, you know, that that last QB one off the board, you know, someone nine, 10, 11 in my rankings and then work from there. One of the things that I love, Chris, that you added uh, to your roster construction articles on four for four is not only the total roster construction percent of winning teams, but you also broke it down into uh, the first six rounds and how the winning teams or the best teams in, in these different best ball leagues on different websites, drafted their players in the first six rounds so uh, I mean uh, let's we've been talking about fan ball and I think that's where most people are, are playing and are going to play so uh, I, I see some I'm looking at them right here uh, on 444's website there's some striking trends about how to go about drafting those first six players if you want to uh, you know tell the listeners exactly what you found there yeah, so I I wanted to dig into that because Ian, if if you look at roster construction from the from the, the ten thousand foot view, you're just seeing you know the total number of players you're taking at each position, and so at, this is of course the extreme wrong way to go about it. But nobody would enter the draft saying, all right, well. 
right, I need to get three quarterbacks. So first round, I'm going to get a quarterback. Second round, I'm going to get a third quarterback and third round. And so now I need six running backs. And so for the next six rounds, I'm going to get running backs. I mean, that's the extreme way to not do it. But it's just people get rigid in looking at roster construction. So my thing was I wanted to kind of zoom in on the early portion of the draft because that's where we're getting the players that are going to give us the greatest output, or at least our projections show that that's where most of the output comes is in those early rounds. So if, we're, if we can isolate or figure out where people are getting the most bang for their buck in terms of the positions that uh, people are drafting at, then and we can get, uh, I guess, draw some takeaways from those first rounds, then we can start to build a profile for where we should be making our investments. Because I know a lot of folks will still continue to draft. Uh, last year was Patrick Mahomes. Uh, in years past, it's been guys like Aaron Rodgers. It's been Drew Brees. It's been Tom Brady. I mean, th- those QB1s and people have continually pushed quarterback ADP up into the first rounds. But as the market has gotten savvy, quarterback ADP has dropped back. But you can still see, like in the table that I have on my uh, roster construction piece uh, for Fanball, that we're still seeing quarterbacks taken in the first six rounds. But, I mean, coincidentally, those I mean teams that are drafting a quarterback that early, I mean, sure, they're winning but they're not winning nearly as much as people that are investing in, again, the core positions, running back, wide receiver. If you want to try and – if you want to swing at the big three uh, in years past, I mean, Ertz, Kittle, Kelsey, if you want to take a swing at those guys, you can definitely make it work there. But it's taking a look at understanding the fact that running back and wide receiver, they're going to be the workhorses of your squad. So you should continually invest at those positions early – and then try and take uh, take a look at the quarterback and tight end uh, position later, or at least middle or later in your draft. Yeah, and I mean, as I'm looking at it here, one thing that that pops out to me is that of the of the winning teams last year on Fanball, the first seven top winning percentages don't have a quarterback drafted in the first six rounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that that's telling. Um, 25%. So a quarter of, uh, of the winning teams went three running backs, three wide receivers. And basically, you know, up to 80% of, of the winning teams on Fanball drafted some combination of, you know, three running backs, three wide receivers, between two and three running backs, between two and three wide receivers, and one tight end. There are a few fours in there, but basically load up on those, those positions that have multiple roster spots like the running backs, wide receivers. And then, like you said, maybe take a stab at Kittle, Kelsey, even potentially Zach Ertz. So what I want to talk to you about now is a lot of times when I'm in a best ball draft and we're around the 2-3 the turn or uh, maybe even into the fourth round, a lot of times I second guess myself about what type of, of player I want to take there. Um, so I want, what I wanted to pick your brain about now is, you know, what type of players are you taking in those first, you know, three, four, five picks? And uh, do your previous picks play a role in, in your next pick? Um, and then when you're done, uh, you know, saying how maybe you, you balance upside risk and, and safety in those rounds, I have a few players to pick your brain on that I, I have a, on a lot of my teams that I'm, you know, a little worried about. Sure, sure. Uh, and I probably have drafted like every single one of them regretted the, any of those guys that you're worried about. 
but I would say from a uh, from a construction standpoint in the early round, typically, and I know I'm kind of playing into I'm playing into narratives, but I'm at least in the first three rounds, I'm looking to grab at least one running back, uh, one running back one who has the profile of being the primary running back and has pass catching upside, and then at least one wide receiver one. And uh, if I can get a complimentary, uh, let's say a running back two, a guy, uh, or a wide receiver two ish, or uh, like a high end slot receiver, something like that, like in there in those first few picks, great. Uh, so at least from a profile standpoint, uh, let's see if I, there was a mock draft that I did recently and I approached it very similarly to how I would a best ball draft, even if the settings were uh, half PPR with TJ Hernandez and some, and some other folks. But I think I opened with, um, I think I had Alvin Kamara in the first round. And then in the second round, I got, uh, I had Josh Jacobs. I was drafting from either the sixth or seventh spot. Um, and I'd be uh, perfectly happy with that opening uh, in a best ball draft because at least from the first round perspective, again, I hit that, uh, I guess, that marker of what I was looking for in terms of running back one with pass catching upside with Kamara. But then Josh Jacobs, he's, he's teetering on that edge of, yes, he is like their primary running back, but then it's just the pass catching ability. I'm not entirely sure is there, but at least I have enough production with him on the ground in order to complement what Kamara is doing with, uh, with having both skill sets. So then in the third round, I'd come back uh, with a, with a wide receiver and then, and then look at my team from there, what I could able, what I'm able to get in the third round. So at least that's where I'm seeing things kind of, kind of start. But a lot of that also has to do with where you're sitting at in the draft. Like what's your, like, where's your pick place at? So if I'm sitting towards the front end of the first round, a lot of those like high end running backs are going in the first like four or five picks sitting towards the back end. Still some running backs are coming in, but that's where the wide receiver ones and Kelsey start to fall into place. So depending on my position in the draft, that might change like where I start but at least within the first few rounds, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for uh, from running backs, looking for both production on the ground and through the air. And then wide receivers, I'm looking for those wide receiver ones, like the Michael Thomases, the Devontae Adams, uh, Tyreek Hill, if at all possible. Like those types of guys are what I'm looking for in the first few rounds. So I'll tell you exactly why I have this dilemma with these certain players. Um, and it, it speaks to what you just, you just mentioned. I never want to go to the first two rounds without taking a, a running back. It's just, I know that there's plenty of teams that have won best ball leagues with going wide receiver, wide receiver, or going wide receiver, tight end, et cetera. But I just, when, when, I, when I'm done with that squad and I take a look at it after the last pick is made, I just do not like its chances if I miss out on a running back in those first few rounds. So what happens is, you know, in those back end teams, I am drafting a Tyreek Hill or a DeAndre Hopkins in the first round. And then I'm almost forcing my own hand to take a running back in the second round. And that usually ends up being someone like Aaron Jones and Austin Eckler. So those are the first two players that I want to pick your brain on. Um, about in, in best ball this year? Are those players that you are targeting? Are those players that you are trying to have on a lower percentage of your team? Because I know, you know, in best ball, the first few rounds, you kind of want, if you're, if you're someone who's playing volume, you kind of want a sprinkling or a piece 
of most of the players in those first few rounds, you know, just to just to diversify a little bit. But Aaron Jones and Austin Eckler, are those two running backs that you are interested in or are you trying to like only take them if they fall to you? Uh, Aaron Jones, I don't have much of an issue with. Uh, even with uh, Green Bay's investment into uh, into AJ Dillon, and uh, it does it looks like they're looking towards doing more of a like a run first like type of offense. And Jamal Williams should be back. Uh, yeah, I expect to see Aaron Jones regress. I mean, you can't really right. score what eighteen was it eighteen yeah. touchdowns? Nineteen, I think. Yeah 19. yeah, nineteen touchdowns in a season, and not expect like that to fall back. Uh, but at least from a production, or uh, rather from a, from a touch share perspective, I mean, I do I do see Aaron Jones as being the the number one at least from from the running back position, like within his offense. Uh, but and also, I mean, since since Green Bay didn't really do much in terms of adding in like more pass catchers to the mix, I can still see him as being as as still taking on some of that role and still being able to show that skill set of being both. Uh, a, like a great runner, I mean, an agile runner on the ground and also like great into, within the passing game itself. So while I do expect his, uh, I guess, his fantasy points to scale back, I don't really see that competition for him uh, in the, I guess, in, uh, within his backfield. I think it's more between Jamal Williams and A.J. Dillon. I think that's where if you can tell yourself a story that Jamal Williams showed enough uh, even after coming back from injury that like he could be like, he can outproduce or at least be on that same level as Aaron Jones. And then, okay, maybe they might be able to keep uh, AJ Dillon like back on the, you know, back on the bench, but that's where uh, I can still see Aaron Jones, at least uh, being able to not necessarily meet his value, but I, I, I do think that he still has that upside that I don't see uh, with, with Jamal Williams. I guess I, I'm just not seeing it there. Yeah. Uh, but for Austin Eckler, it's a little bit different because they're going through, I mean, a change at quarterback. And while I don't mind Tyrod Taylor because we've seen him be serviceable, like for like when he was in Buffalo, it's just that his um, and I actually just compared his uh, his yards per drive to Philip Rivers. I mean, not necessarily dwarfed, but I mean, Philip Rivers, it was at least able to uh, keep the keep the Chargers at least at times. Uh, when he wasn't throwing like three or four interceptions like per game, he was able to keep the uh, the offense matriculating down the field. Not so much with Tyrod Taylor. It's actually a fairly stark contrast between the two and what they're able to do on offense. But now Tyrod Taylor, he has that running that rushing upside, but the rushing only helps Tyrod Taylor. That's not going to help Austin Eckler. So I, I do have some reservations about like how like how he's going one how he's going to be used and two how productive that entire offense is going to be like in 2020. Yeah, I agree. And the thing with with number two running backs, like I think, or your first round two running backs, whether it's your first or your second, you know, your the idea is your your hope is that they're going to crack your best ball optimal lineup, you know. 12 to 15 times that year uh, because they're, you know, a top pick and it's not someone that you're drafting in the eighth or ninth round or, or even later and just hoping that they, you know, you get five or six starts out of them. Those guys you're hoping are in your lineup almost every week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And actually, uh, I just pulled it up real quick. So uh, Philip Rivers last three seasons in, uh, in LA he had uh, yards per drive of 37.5, 35.4, and 34.8. Uh, 
Uh, so that that was like in line with like most of the QB ones within the league at the time for each of those three years. And now comparing those to Tyrod Taylor's 2017 Buffalo season, also his few starts in 2018 with Cleveland, uh, those were 27.9 and 25.6 like respectively. So we're talking, I mean, again, fairly stark contrast between what Tyrod Taylor was able to do and what Phillip Rivers was able to do. Now you can talk supporting cast, offensive line, I mean, all sorts of things. I mean, I can totally see now with Tyra Taylor having Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, a guy like, I mean, that's, I can see the narratives pointing positively, but it, again, without knowing beforehand, and he hasn't really piloted that offense before, it's hard for me to have that same level of enthusiasm for the Chargers. Right. And I mean, to a certain extent, maybe Austin Eckler, um, was part of the reason that the chains were moving. He and Keenan Allen were really good possession receivers. You know, oh, yes. got, got the ball out to them quickly. And, you know, on a third and six, a dump off to him turned into a first down often. So uh, as long as Tyrod Taylor utilizes him, you know, there's lots of research that's, that says, you know, it's not necessarily the quarterback. I know like when, when Christian McCaffrey went to Carolina, they were worried because Cam wasn't a check down machine, but he turned into one because he was checking the ball down Christian McCaffrey I'm not saying Austin Eckler is Christian McCaffrey but I think you know hopefully Tyrod Taylor utilizes him when you know his first few reads aren't open the next player that I want to talk about and I already mentioned him as someone that I've taken in the first round a little bit is DeAndre Hopkins now he we can the argument is for another day whether his situation improves or uh, you know whether his quarterback improves because I think a lot of people are, you know, just as, as bullish on uh, Kyler Murray as they are Deshaun Watson's abilities at this point in, in their careers. How about the landing spot? I mean, there are obviously more uh, receivers. I don't even know. I mean, maybe, I mean, with Will Fuller, Kenny Stills, you know, Kiki QT, the tight ends were great in, in, in Houston. And now he moves to Arizona, an air raid, you know, they're throwing the ball uh, at a pretty nice clip, but now there's, he has to deal with Christian Kirk, Larry Fitzgerald. So, I mean, talk to me about, you know, do you think this is a landing spot that is going to uh, improve his, his target volume, uh, you know, decrease his target volume? How do you see DeAndre Hopkins role in, in 2020 shaking out? And I, I can't see him like hitting a similar target share than what he had in Houston. I mean, when he was in Houston, I mean, like you just mentioned, I mean, it was Will Fuller. I mean, a fine wide receiver, but like he could just couldn't stay on the field as much. And then you had a slew of slot receivers uh, that either were great for a second, but then they got into Bill O'Brien's doghouse and uh, so, yeah, it really was just DeAndre Hopkins, and that was about it. I mean, the guy had like a 30% target share, I mean, mm-hmm. like multiple seasons in a row or like fairly close to it. So, and now he moves to uh, an offense that features, I mean, at, at least in, in my eyes, uh, like a, a guy that's going to walk into Canton here whenever he decides to hang him up. And then Christian Kirk, who I still think is, I, I want to believe in the talent. I do think he's a great fit for Cliff Kingsbury's offense. So, but he has legitimate talent around him so that it's, it's hard for me to see him matching that, that target share. But if it's, if we, we don't, if we want to discount Larry Fitzgerald and Christian Kirk, it's let's say if we want to discount the, the competition for targets, all right, that's fine. 
The other thing that I'm, I'm somewhat worried about, though, is, is play volume. So in, in 2019, uh, the, so the Cardinals were playing from behind on uh, at least a, like less passes or uh, less snaps than what the, uh, the Houston Texans were. Houston Texans were actually in negative game strips like more often than what we thought. Uh, but with their improvements, the Cardinals' improvements on defense and also the use of a guy like Kenyon Drake, who surprisingly enough, like while he has some decent pass catching acumen, he wasn't used as a pass catcher like once he moved over from Miami. So if they do want to try and switch to not necessarily a run first offense, but more of a balanced offense, then that's also going to reduce the number of pass attempts that Kyler Murray is going to have. He brings enough juice on his le- uh, juice with his legs on his own. So I could see a scenario where a guy like DeAndre Hopkins, who was living off of 27, 28, 29% target share, now shifts back to something like 24, 25% target share, which is, I mean, those are wide receiver one market share values. But if it's also on an offense that passes less, then now we're looking at instead of 150, 160 DeAndre Hopkins targets, we're looking at 110. I mean, Larry Fitzgerald and Christian Kirk, I think they were almost side by side in terms of targets. I could, I could see a similar situation where they all have about 110 targets apiece. And then at this point, we're splitting hairs on who's going to wind up getting the touchdowns. I mean, to me, it almost lines up as that's, that's a legitimate scenario that we should consider. Yeah, I agree. And then I, there's always uh, some growing pains in, in a, fir- a first year in an offense, um, especially leaving a quarterback like Deshaun Watson, who they had such a good chemistry and, you know, he just locked in on him in, in certain situations, just fed him targets. So I agree. Um, but when he falls to the, you know, sometimes I've been getting DeAndre Hopkins in, in the second round. So mm-hmm. I have, those are my, those are the three players that I have a, a lot of on the, on the best ball teams that I've drafted so far that I was a little bit worried about. So what I also asked Chris to do was, um, he wrote an awesome article on 4 for 4 about post-draft risers and fallers and how the draft impacted certain players. So what I asked him to do was pick one, pl- one player or, you know, one prototype of player from each position and just comment on uh, their, their stock after the draft. So at quarterback, Chris, who did you decide to highlight for us? Uh, I, I cheated a little bit just because the uh... – since the piece just dropped, I would say just maybe four or five days ago. Uh, but my, my latest article on Dak Prescott kind of hones in on some of that value that we saw uh, him start to not necessarily value, but the hype that really went into the Dallas offense, like after they took CD lamb. I mean, I know that Dallas needs help on defense. Uh, I know that there, uh, there's some, at least a couple of questions about their offensive line. Uh, but I mean, if you've got a chance to draft a guy like CD lamb, I mean, you go out and you get yourself a CD lamb. And I mean, if they're able to move on, I mean, think about this. They're able to move on from Jason Witten and Randall Cobb to CD lamb. And we don't know much about Blake Jarwin, but at least we know he's much more athletic than Jason Witten. So, I mean, right now their, their oldest player, their oldest skill position player is Amari Cooper at 26 years old. That's cool. I mean, that's, re- that's really, to me, that's exciting for an offense where you have a, a quarterback that knows how to, or the, we've, we've seen him demonstrate time and time again that he can 
he can one like hit the deep ball. He can hit uh, crossing routes. He can hit passes on the run. And then he can also, he's a mobile quarterback by himself. So, I mean, I'm excited for this offense and we saw what he was able to produce last season. And so now the, the market are like, we always overcorrect within the fantasy community. If a guy was being taken as quarterback 12, 13, 14, the year before, now he's got to be up to QB five, QB four, QB three, which at this point, as we were just talking earlier about attacking the onesie position in best ball drafts. I mean, he's kind of one of those guys where if, if I can get him, at, at a decent price or even at his current cost, uh, I wouldn't be all too mad about drafting Dak Prescott in best ball. Yeah, I mean, and Dak's always been one of my my favorite quarterbacks. In the last few years, you can kind of get him towards the end of that QB1 range. This year, you are definitely going to pay a premium because of this narrative around C.D. Lamb and all of the weapons and that offense, I think, is really going to be pretty explosive this year. So at running back, you wanted, and this was, I was absolutely thrilled that you uh, put this in the show notes. You kind of wanted to talk about uh, not a specific running back, but a profile of guys, Uh, guys that it seems as though they may have lost their jobs uh, at running back because their team invested some draft capital in one of uh, the running backs that were taken in the first, you know, round or two. And it's always something that I uh, struggle with in best ball. You know, it comes to the seventh or eighth round and someone like Kerryon Johnson is still sitting around. He's someone that's falling a ton in drafts uh, lately because of DeAndre Swift. Um, And then like you have Damian Williams because of the Clyde Edwards Hilaire end of the first round pick. Uh, And there's more that I'm sure you're going to speak to, but what do you do? And it's an individual basis, obviously, but in general, that profile of player, you know, RB1 that looks like they may have lost their job because someone uh, new and shiny was drafted in that same position. Yeah, and uh, that's where I think as as best ball drafters, like we, we need to uh, look into one if you're if you're doing a lot of drafts. So like I think you're 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 a perfect example of like if you're doing 20 to 30 drafts i mean essentially you're building a portfolio of players that you have investments in so even if you think that carry on johnson marlon mack jamal i mean those guys that have essentially like even like you can throw mark ingram into that mix if you think he's too old and jk dobbins is about to take over his job throw him into the mix but if you if you see those guys and those are if you're already thinking that they lost their jobs, then a lot of people in the community are probably feeling the same way. But what can we do with that? How can we leverage that information? Well, we can buy the dip. I mean, if those guys are falling in drafts, it's not like they've retired. It's not like they've been cut from their teams. So if we can still get at least a decent amount of touch share or volume like out of them based off of their current roles for what they what they should at least get in 2020 then those are guys that I at least want to try and get uh, a few shares of. I mean, if we're not going to go all in and try and get, have a, have 30, 40, 50% exposure to them, let's say even 10% of your, your draft allotment, you would want to try and wind up with some of those guys at their reduced cost. So a guy like carry on Johnson. So sure. I mean, Swift getting drafted there wasn't the best for him. I hurt multiple seasons, Uh, And I mean, with the way that Matt Patricia has been running the running the Lions, I mean, we've been more pressed into buying into guys like uh, 
like Kenny Galladay, Marvin Jones, I mean, so on and so forth. But for Carryon Johnson, I mean, he is one of those guys that he was used in the passing game. I mean, he doesn't have a ton of targets, but if I can at least tell myself a story as to how he can, one, continue to have touches in his backfield, because as of right now, I mean, he is, I mean, I would assume he's the starting running back or at the very least the 1A or 1B in that offense, then he has some of those things that you would want out of the guys in the first few rounds that you'd be drafting. And now you're telling me I can get him in the, what, sixth, seventh, eighth round? I might want to invest in that. Very similar to Jamal Williams. 2019, we were having that discussion of if uh, if Jamal Williams didn't get hurt, I mean, how much more would he have gotten in Green Bay's offense? And now you're telling me that Green Bay wants to implement an even more run-heavy scheme? They might, they might not be able to because of negative game scripts, but if Jamal Williams now starts to pick up more, uh, more passing game uh, work, what can you say about that? I mean, there, for each of those guys, at least for both of those guys, there, there's at least uh, like multiple paths to production that you can take some of that value in, in the later rounds. With Marlon Mack, it's a little bit different. I know that there's, I mean, he was used as a receiver in college, but I think those were in like bursts and spurts. And Indianapolis really didn't use him at all as a, as a receiver. So if really his only claim to fame is being able to run between that great offensive line, I just, to me, he doesn't fit the profile of a guy that I want to invest in, especially now with Jonathan Taylor being there. But it's just looking at their profile, looking at how they're used, looking at, I mean, trying to tell yourself or at least working into a range of outcomes for each of those players. That's where, and then of course, that the big thing is what their opportunity costs, their new opportunity cost is going to be based off the draft. That's the mindset you want to try and get yourself into before just summarily saying, yeah, that guy's washed. He lost his job. I don't want to draft him anymore. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't have said it any better. And I think it is a case by case basis. Obviously, Jonathan Taylor, the talent and, you know, the, the spot at which the Colts drafted him with with some other needs on the board. I feel like you know he's probably going to to overtake Mac at some point this year. Um, if you had to give me one of these, you know, RB one last year, people are afraid they're not an RB one this year. Who doesn't let the rookie unseat them this year? Is it Carry On? Is it Mac? Is it Jamal Williams not letting Dylan be the RB two? Is it uh, Mark Ingram not letting J.K. Dobbins take over, or is it Damian Williams not letting Fida Edwards-Alaire take over? Uh, gosh, I'm a sucker for Damian Williams. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't help myself. I mean, it, you know, it was the, well, Damian Williams can't do it because of the draft capital. I mean, you know, UDFA, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then now it's, well, since uh, they took CEH, and uh, Andy Reid like thought he you know like, looks like Westbrook and like all this other stuff. I I still have to root for the underdog in that one. So he, that'd be the first guy that I'm like Damian Williams. I'm still continuing to invest in. I'll buy that dip all day long. And if I have to take the L on it again uh, after last year, I'll probably wind up doing that. Uh, the other guy though, I think that is possible uh, for him to do it is is Carryon Johnson. And just for the reasons that, that I, uh, I laid out in kind of uh, caping up for him a little bit, because I think he can also still be used as a pass catcher. Uh, it's, again, not a ton of targets to work with. And I, I understand that DeAndre Swift is the, is the better pass catcher between the two, but if the usage is still there. And you want to, if 
we want to at least project out or at least talk about like, is it possible? Then I think it's at least possible to entertain the thought that carry on Johnson could wind up holding off uh, Swift for at least the 2020 season. Yeah. You're pulling up my heartstrings there with Damian Williams. I actually traded a first round pick this year uh, for him in the only dynasty league that I play in. And <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, la- I traded last year, last mm-hmm. year I traded for him. I was like, I was in desperate need of, of running back help at the beginning of last season. So I traded a first round this year. Um, he ended up obviously not doing much for me in the regular season last year. Um, and I ended up having a pretty bad year in that dynasty league. So I missed out on, I think like the second or third overall pick in that league, which is, you know, haunt is haunting me right now, but um, what can you do? It was a bad move. That happens. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, I can't really see the chiefs just, you know, putting Williams on the shelf after how well he played in the playoffs also, you know, like, he he was a huge part of their run to the Super Bowl, and I think that he is going to absolutely be involved in that offense uh, like you think so as well. Who was the wide receiver that you uh, wanted to to highlight as someone who was a post-draft riser or faller? Uh, I mean, I, I have to get Robert Woods. I mean, if I can get more shares of Bobby Trees, I mean, sign me up for it. But his ADP has slowly been creeping up. I mean, I think now that Brandon Cooks is gone, uh, I mean, their their only investment, like, at the position, I mean, you can say that he's a Josh Reynolds, like, he's competition for Josh Reynolds. He also profiles as kind of a, a bigger slot-like type dude. Um, but either way, uh, with their with what they're doing at running back by taking another running back this season, it still looks like they're moving more towards having a, uh, like, a, 12 personnel, short passing like type of game. And honestly, that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me all too much considering if you're looking at uh, Jared Goff over the past like couple of seasons, his, uh, his actually his adjusted yards per attempt has slowly dipped back. So we're looking at, I think it was like eight and a half back in 2017, 2018. Uh, this past year, it was, down to, it was down to seven. And then as we saw them start to incorporate like more two tight end sets with uh, when Gerald Everett and Tyler Higby were healthy, mm-hmm. uh, you, we can see like Robert Woods start to get peppered with as many, if not more targets in 2020 than he was in 2019 when he was sitting at probably like a 23% target share in their offense. And now you're telling me there's no Brandon Cooks. I mean, yeah, I mean, Robert Woods, I think, would be like one of the ideal guys that you would want to try and target in like the, I want to say around the fourth or fifth round, if at all possible. Yeah, absolutely. They're like towards the middle and, and end of the season, they were getting real funky with their offense. Like you said, two tight end sets. Cooper Cup wasn't even on the field for like half the snaps, which I thought was strange. Um, and <clears throat> it was something that, you know, I paid attention to because of, you know, obviously the DFS app aspect to it but Bobby Woods he was still on the field getting peppered with targets as you said all right so the last player we're going to talk about before we get out of here is a tight end that I am heavily invested in already in best ball Uh, who is your and I'm I'm assuming this is a riser post draft for you who's your tight end that you wanted to talk about Uh, I mean Hayden Hurst I think it's quickly I, I like when the when the actual when the signing happened, I kind of dismissed it because I think I was more trying. I was still in the haze of trying to figure out like why would the Browns like pick up Austin Hooper like when they had David and Joker already, and I'm, I'm still trying to like ferret out like how how all that's going to work. 
But now you've got Hayden Hurst, like kind of like going, going to Atlanta. And I mean, last year, if we're looking at the number of targets that, uh, that Austin Hooper had like last season, I mean, again, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go ahead and just summarily assign all of Austin Hooper's targets like to Hayden Hurst. That's, that's not how it works per se, but to me, like at least, but that's in a vacuum. But if we're looking at this specific situation with the Atlanta Falcons, so Austin Hooper leaves behind uh, 97 targets, but now they didn't go out and get uh, any of the top wide receivers in the, in this class. Uh, They have Todd Gurley now coming in to replace Devonta Freeman. So, at least again, looking at it from an objective standpoint, how does how does Hayden Hurst not just walk in and fill in Austin Hooper's role? How does that offense not continue to operate as it did this past season? They've invested at the they've invested on the defensive side of the ball, but again, those are those are rookie investments, so they need time to develop. So how does that team or how does that offense not continue to operate in a similar fashion to then what it did in 2019 i don't see how it differs or at least significantly differs to the point where a guy like hayden hurst doesn't walk into 90 targets 80 i mean something in that range so that he becomes one of those at least high-end producers at the tight end position that we can start to rely on week in and week out it's just to me he's going to be one of those guys where of course, he's switching teams, so that bears some caution or that you have to assume some risk in doing so. But he catches on in that offense. Man, I mean, that he could wind up – that we can wind up relying on him the same way that we relied on Hooper in 2019. Yeah, and, you know, you, you mentioned Todd Gurley and Devonta Freeman. I feel like people don't understand that or don't realize that while Todd Gurley was a great receiver out of the backfield, you know, a few years ago, he really dipped off in, in that – in that category. And I think it's the, well, you could argue all day, the overall, uh, you know, effectiveness of Gurley compared to Devante Freeman. I think they definitely downgraded at pass catching running back going from Freeman to Gurley. So those targets are definitely going to be, there's going to be lots of targets and there's not a ton of talent there aside from Julio and, and Calvin Ridley to, to catch them. So I think you're spot on there with Hayden Hurst. All right, that will do it for the ride in NFL DFS podcast. This was a, you know, just Chris Allen dropping knowledge all over us. Chris, it was great to have you. Uh, I will, I would love to have you back in the future. Dude, absolutely. Um, the other thing that I like doing, especially once we get into the season, if folks ever check out any of my other work and kind of my claim to fame is I actually do a lot of uh, weather research. So it's, it's not, like a huge factor, especially like week in and week out. But for some of the big storms that we saw, snow, wind, rain, uh, it's just been something that's been fascinating to me to study. And for DFS purposes, I can assume that a lot of folks are would be interested in that. So if you're ever into that, or if that's something that uh, would be of interest to some of your listeners, I'd be more than happy to come back and talk about some of the research that I've done into weather and kind of how it, uh, how it's played an effect on some of the games. And so I'll be doing some more studies about that over during this off season. And uh, hopefully I'll have some more projects to unveil, like as, uh, as we go along uh, throughout the summer and uh, how it can play a role in some of our uh, DFS research. Absolutely. I look forward 
to your uh, meteorology uh, forecasts and <laughs> <laughs> the research on how that impacts, because believe it or not, it does. You know, in extreme cases, there's definitely some merit to to paying attention to the weather. That will do it for the Ride In NFL DFS podcast. Uh, I'll be back later in the week with uh, Mike Beers of Rotoviz to talk about some of the tools he has over there. Until then. All I see is signs, all I see is dollar signs.